from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. I believe that success is built on a foundation of failures. Because that means you've tried and you've learned and eventually you hit that goal. All along the way, I was told by any number of people, it couldn't happen, I couldn't do it, I didn't have the right look, the right talent, I talked about that Jesus stuff too much, and had I listened to any of them, I wouldn't be talking to you today. I'm Sarah Fenske. Debbie Turner wasn't just the first Miss Missouri to become Miss America. Even though she was crowned 32 years ago, she remains the only. And she achieved that milestone back when the Miss America pageant was must-see TV. In 1989, the pageant was the second highest viewed live television event all year, behind only the Super Bowl. And as America watched, Debbie Turner absolutely crushed it on the marimba. Now, not surprisingly, Debbie Turner's Miss America win launched her to stardom. She became a sought-after speaker, a KSDK news anchor, and later a CBS News correspondent. She also achieved her childhood dream and became a veterinarian, graduating the zoo's program not long after her Miss America win. Now known as Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell and living in Michigan, she opens up about her story in her new memoir. It's called Courageous Faith, A Lifelong Pursuit of Faith Over Fear. It comes out tomorrow. And she joins us today to discuss it. So, Dr. Bell, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, hi, Sarah. It is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, unless I'm examining your dog, just call me Debbie. It's fine. (laughs) Well, if you insist, I I won't argue with you. Um, I do. (laughs) So, look, I just watched a video of you playing the marimba in the Miss America pageant, and it was just about the coolest thing. Do you ever go back and watch that moment? Um, no, I don't really. I actually still have my marimba. We have a, a room in our home that has our piano and then my marimba. So we call it the music room. And I go and lovingly dust it very often. <laughs> <laughs> You're not actually still playing it so frequently? Not very frequently. I, I jokingly say it's become a party trick at dinner parties when we have people over because people will come in and they're like, ooh, what is that? And then I have to take it off, take off the cover to prove that I can still play it. Um, but uh, it, it's a cool instrument, and I've, I've always hoped secretly that my daughter would take it up as well so I could pass it down to her. I think that's a great idea. And I got to ask, I mean, it's a cool instrument. It's so unusual. Before reading your book, I honestly had never even heard of it. What got you started on the marimba? Yeah, it, it's actually something that is um, kind of uh, very organic. I started playing in the band in, in junior high, or we called it middle school, and I was a percussionist. And very often I would get the xylophone parts because I knew how to read music. My mother forced me, like millions of other kids, to take piano when I was younger. And so that's how it really started. And when I entered my first pageant, and I was not a pageant girl growing up, but when I entered the first one, talent was a part of it. It was not in the Miss America system. It was was a high school pageant. Hmm. And I was talking to my mother, you know, what should I do for talent? Because I'd had ballet lessons and I'd taken baton twirling and I played the piano and I'd done gymnastics and I wasn't really good at any of that. And my mother was in the kitchen doing something. And I remember she kind of uh, 
flippantly threw over her shoulder at me, well, if you expect to win, do what you're good at. Hmm. Well, at that point, I was the number two snare drummer in the state of Arkansas. I was a very good percussionist. And so I decided to just pick a different percussion instrument, the marimba, because I thought people would enjoy that more than me doing a drum break on a on a drum set on stage. And so that's how it all started. I love it. And it ended up working out so great. But as you detail in your book, it wasn't always clear that this was going to be the path to victory. You know, there's always consultants and advisors. They try to get involved. Mm-hmm. They mess with what makes you you. They suggested you you swap out the marimba. Absolutely. Just as you said, you didn't, you hadn't heard of a marimba. One of my friends, when I first started in pageants, uh, gave, you know, unhelpful advice by saying, you know, you should do something else. You said, saying, she said, first of all, half the people in the world don't know what a marimba is, and the other half won't know what to think when they see you pr- playing it. Uh, but I stuck to my mother's advice of sticking to what I was good at, and mm-hmm. I felt like being unique would be an advantage. There was always going to be a thousand singers or, you know, even gymnast or dancers, but there probably weren't going to be that many marimba players, and that proved to be true. Hmm. Uh, so that that set me out, and so I, I stuck to it, and plus I was good at it. That's where my confidence was. And so my goal back then was to choose songs that were familiar to people so that they could tell that what I was playing was right and that I played it well. And so over it took me years to kind of come up with this formula of choosing the right songs to play, but I I wanted people to know that I knew what I was doing and that I was doing it well. Hmm. So on a more serious note, they didn't just want you to change your talent. Uh, There was an advisor at one point who suggested you should, quote, tone down the Jesus stuff. And it's very clear reading your book, you did not listen to that advice. Like this is this is still very much something that, that you're proud of and you wear on your sleeve. That must have been tempting, though. It, well, was it tempting? I don't know, Sarah, if it was tempting. I knew very clearly uh, who I was, was by the grace of God. And, you know, I did grow up in a Christian home. I am a Christian now, and I'm not a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home, but because I've had a personal relationship with God. And so that is embedded. It's baked into my identity. So there was no extricating it. And so people either had to take me as I am and love me or not. Uh, and so that was a a a critical decision that I made very young in life, even as a teenager, that if you got to know Debbie, you were going to get to know who made Debbie Debbie, uh, if that makes any sense. And so, no, I didn't take that advice. And I never never mean to ostracize anyone or to offend anybody. Um, But I know uh, who God is to me, and I know what He's done in my life, and uh, so I just make no bones about that, and I don't apologize for the grace of God in my life, and so it is what it is. So you had to kind of walk a, a narrow tightrope after you were crowned Miss America, and you ended up speaking to schools, some of them public schools. It was kind of hard to to get the balance right of what to share, so you were true to that that thing that is such a huge part of your life, but also so people didn't feel like they were being proselytized. I was. I was intrigued by what you wrote about, about how you ended up deciding to thread that needle. Walk us through kind of how that controversy went and and how you ended up solving it. And that's a great characterization. It really was like threading a needle. So how could I be true to myself and my own identity? And let's face it, I was going into schools to to give that message. Be who you are, who you were created to be. Don't try to be anybody else, but be the best that you could be. So I wouldn't be doing myself or the message that I was 
uh, hoping to give to these students any favors if I all of a sudden was going to tamp down a part, an important part of my identity. And so uh, I'll, I'll leave the, the uh, audience to read the book to get all the details, but suffice it to say that there were those who didn't want me to be as outspoken about my faith in public schools. And I understand that. Um, but I, uh, through some prayer and through some great advice, said, you know, I get it. I'm really not here to evangelize in schools. I want these kids to be inspired. I want them to defy the odds against them. And so I, I want access to the schools. I'll let the students decide what they want to hear from me. Hmm. And as it turned out, each time they wanted to hear that part of, of my identity and my life's path as well. So it worked out really well. Uh, but uh, I give more details in the book about how that happened. And, you know, I still use that lesson today, uh, even 32 years later, as you uh, so aptly said in the introduction. And I just got to say, just take a little bunny trail. When you said 32 years ago, uh, it made my stomach drop. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm old. I mean, time flies, but but you're not yeah. old. I mean, <laughs> you're, you're still very young because you were so young when you won this. And, you know, it's interesting. You were at that point, you were pretty experienced in the pageant world. Um, you know, but you were still you were still very young for your age. You had already lost Miss Arkansas. You'd been the first runner up a number mm-hmm. of times before mm-hmm. you made it made the leap to go over to Miss Missouri. And it seems like this is a moment where a lot of people in your shoes might have decided, you know what, this isn't in the cards for me. What advice would you have for people who, who aren't sure whether they should double down on their dream or maybe figure out the next dream? All right, so you have just tapped on the heart of why I wanted to write this book. Because we all, in our own human existence, run into resistance, we run into failure and disappointment, and sometimes inequity. And I believe the difference between one person who falls and succeeds and another person who falls and doesn't succeed is that very intentional decision to have the courage to get up. And that's where the title comes, Courageous Faith. Uh, So it was important, not that I figure out how not to fail, but how to learn and, and keep going in spite of the failures. I believe that success is built on a foundation of failures because that means you've tried and you've learned and eventually you hit that goal. So I love to say it took me seven years, 11 tries in two different states to win a state pageant and go on to the Miss America pageant. And all along the way, I was told by any number of people, it couldn't happen, I couldn't do it, I didn't have the right look, the right talent, I talked about that, Jesus stuff too much. And had I listened to any of them, I wouldn't be talking to you today. And not all of them were enemies or detractors or frenemies, as we say in the 21st century. Some of them were family members. My own dad said, you know what? This pageant thing must not be for you. Why don't you just get up, give up your education is what's important. Mm-hmm. And he was right. My education was important, uh, but I had a sense of purpose in this. And so I decided I'm going to keep trying. And by the grace of God, it worked out. And that's the message that I want to send in telling some of these stories of my life in courageous faith is, yes, you are going to hit walls. You're going to hit speed bumps. Sometimes you're going to hit what you think is a dead end. But if you'll have the courage to dust yourself off and keep going, learn and try again, I believe that you will achieve your goal. 
We're talking today to Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell. She's the author of Courageous Faith, A Lifelong Pursuit of Faith Over Fear. She has so many fans here in Missouri, not just from being our one and only Miss Missouri to make it all the way to the top, (laughs) but also as a a KSDK host and and anchor. Debbie, I got to ask you one other question from your pageant years, because you don't mention this in the book, but I found myself intrigued by it. Donald Trump was one of the judges in the Miss America pageant the year you won. What is it like Mm -hmm. looking back on that now knowing all of the things we know about this man, for better or for worse? Well, you know what? My experience was it was a good one. And I'll, you know, I'll just say that he, of course, owned a lot of hotels in Atlantic City at that time. Um, uh, and I stayed as a contestant in one of his properties, the uh, Trump Castle. And so there was a tradition back then that whoever won the pageant would get upgraded to what they called a high roller suite. So they were the really luxurious, swanky uh, suites. And so he was one of my uh, judges as 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 well as Felicia Rashad and Mm. Debbie Allen and um, a baseball player, I believe his name is Todd Williams. Um, And so he found out that I was staying in one of his properties and he escorted me and my family, not just me, there was nothing untoward about it, uh, to my new upgraded suite. And, you know, he was very gracious and it was a lovely experience. I don't know that it connects with anything that has happened since then, but that was my experience at that time, as you said, 32 years years ago. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that didn't end up being one of those cautionary tales. He was a gentleman. Uh, you got that high roller suite. That's a, that's an awesome moment there. And as you write in the book, in that high roller suite, you're eating pepperoni pizza. That's your, how you celebrated your victory. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I was this little country brown girl from Arkansas, and I had never seen opulence like that before. I grew up in a lower middle class home, so it was more luxury. I mean, there was marble everywhere, and there was a, a jacuzzi in the living room. And my dad just reminded me a couple of days ago um, that in the in the bedroom part of the suite that the television came up on a like a hydraulic lift <laughs> from the foot of the bed. It was this, it was this great glorious thing. So I was like a kid at Disney World pushing every button I could. And I was hungry because I had just starved myself for weeks on end to be ready to compete in the swimsuit con- uh, uh, competition. So that night, yes, we filled up the uh, my traveling companion and I filled up the jacuzzi and got in it in our swimsuits and ate pizza. Uh, and that probably was one of the best nights of my entire year as Miss America. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's such a moment of victory. And then Miss America, this is actually a really hard job, as becomes clear from your book. Not that you complain about it, but a lot of work goes into doing this. And then there's also you get journalists asking questions. <laughs> Some controversy came. You were asked a question. I'm going to read the question. I'm going to read your answer. Um, okay. They asked you, how did you how did you feel being a role model for little black girls around the country? And this was like almost right after your win here. You said, Mm -hmm. I'm a born-again Christian, a veterinary student, a musician, and an animal lover. There are many facets to my identity. Being black is just one of them. You share in the book just a little bit of regret over that answer. How so? Yeah, I learned very quickly. And that actually, that question was posed to me within an hour of being crowned as Miss America. So I had no experience under my belt. And again, this little brown girl from Arkansas. So I wasn't ready for the American free press at that point. And so I made that statement flippantly. What I didn't understand at the moment is how that might look Mm 
to someone uh, looking in instead of how it looked from me on the inside looking out. Uh, and so, you know, it, it didn't ingratiate me with many in the African-American community. Uh, many people misinterpreted the statement. And then one media, big media outlet, misquoted me and said mm. that I said being Black is the least of who I am. And that's certainly not what I meant. And I don't believe that's what I said. And I spent the whole year trying to, to clear that up. And so it taught me a really valuable lesson. First of all, we need to be precise in our communication. Say what you mean and mean what you say and say it in a way in which the listener, reader, or receiver receives the same message that you meant to um, send. And so that was my uh, baptism by fire uh, into um, being a target of the American Free Press. And I learned that, that lesson pretty quickly. Hmm. And this is what I also learned is uh, particularly in, in our society, in our American modern society, uh, we have a number of groups of peoples in the society that have been oppressed or um, uh, rejected in many ways, marginalized, including women, including people of color, including those living with disabil disabilities. And very often representation matters. And what I didn't appreciate that night was my brown face was representation mm -hmm. for others who who looked like me. And so it placed a mantle or a responsibility on me to represent well. Uh, and so I talk about this more in the book. I learned that lesson quickly and never made that mistake again. And of course, now we live in, you know, this Me Too, uh, Time's Up, Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, era where in, you know, LGBTQIA++, where all these groups uh, need representation in every segment of our society. And so it is important, I believe, for those of us who are given a forum, given a platform to represent well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that comes across so well in your book. And, and again, what also comes across so well is just your Christian faith. I mean, this book is such a personal book, and it's also a very spiritual mm -hmm. book, I think, for people who are looking for guidance. And I wonder if, if you have any thoughts on how that fits into all that representation today. It feels like of all the groups that you belong in, it's maybe Christians who sometimes get short shrift um, from certain media outlets. Well, gosh, yeah, many groups do. And I, I've always said I'm unashamedly and unabashedly Christian. And I don't mean that to um, offend anyone else. I can only tell you what my experience has been. Uh, and that is God has been mighty, mighty good to me. And I'm so grateful. Uh, and I believe that it is important for Christians to truly be Christ-like and to love well. It's not just about a set of no's and don'ts. Mm -hmm. It's not just about um, re religious ritual or liturgy. It's really about loving well, receiving the agape love from God given to us through Jesus and then giving that to each other. And so for my sisters and brothers in the faith, uh, I believe that is our, our mission in this crazy age that we live in. We need to love each other well uh, and, sh and demonstrate the love uh, of Christ. And even if someone doesn't agree with my particular tenets uh, or our tenets of Christian faith, I think loving well crosses all faiths and beliefs. 
Well, uh, Dr. Debbie Turner-Bell, uh, I know I'm supposed to call you Debbie. I got to use the doctor. You're a veterinarian. You earned that degree. I, wanna... I did earn it. <laughs> and you make clear in the book that wasn't easy, but you did it just a year after Miss America. So I want to thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. And I hope everybody gets courageous faith. I hope it's a blessing. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.